My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So happy to have you here. Well, well, I've got a great guest and a great book for you today. Michael Greenberg joins me. He's an attorney, a historian, and author of a number of books on some fascinating subjects, including the one we're about to discuss, called The Mad Bomber of New York, the extraordinary true story of the manhunt that paralyzed a city. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's great to be with you, and I, uh, I appreciate your interest in the Mad Bomber. So this is a really amazing story, but I'd never heard about it until I picked up your book. Where did you, you first come across this story, and what prompted you to write a book about it? Well, I, I mean, I, I think most authors kind of revel in stories about how certain writing topics come upon them you know, in, in an epiphany, you know, like kind of like the Ten Commandments being handed down to, to Moses. And while some writing ideas are no doubt the result of some brilliant inspiration, um, you know, others just kind of creep up and quietly tap you on the, sh- on the shoulder. And I wish I could tell you the actual origin of the idea for the Mad Bomber, but the truth is I don't exactly remember how I found the topic. I'm fairly certain that I stumbled upon the story in a newspaper archive section of This Day in History while doing some research for my first book, uh, which was Peaches and Daddy. But there was no moment when I knew this is it. And the reason was that I was focused on the first book and not on future work. But I was intrigued enough that the topic stayed in my mind and after getting that urge to write again, I began to have a closer closer look at the topic. So as I got into the research, the first thing that I noticed was that the, the story of the Mad Bomber 
was big when it happened. Um, by the mid-1950s, uh, the bombings had steadily risen to a, you know, a crescendo and grabbed headlines in New York and even across the country. And it was a, you know, a precarious time in history with the ever-present reality of nuclear warfare and this rising homegrown threat further frayed already heightened nerves. So the second thing that struck me about the Mad Bomber was just what what you said, how few people know about the story today. It's really a forgotten jewel of history, if you will. Most people who lived in New York during the time recall the climate of, uh, climate of fear that gripped the city, but, but by and large, after the passage of time, the story has been largely forgotten. And these two elements, uh, combined with the obvious uh, legal ramifications of the story, convinced me that this was a, a pretty good book idea. The, the story also has cultural significance in terms of the, the birth of criminal profiling. It was uh, the case presented the first use of criminal profiling in a uh, uni- in an American uh, police department. But those are the uh, the things that attracted me to the story, and uh, and what prompted me to write uh, to write the book. So let's start with George Mateski. Who was he? What was his background? So. When he was finally apprehended, the country was stunned. Um, the Mad Bomber turned out to be this mild-mannered, inoffensive, and almost jovial middle-aged man by the name of George Mateski, who lived alone with his two spinster sisters in Waterbury, Connecticut. One of his, one of his lawyers would later comment that Mateski could pass as someone who could be your next-door neighbor, Appearances aside, uh, Metesky harbored an inner rage that was fueled by a, a deep and very profound mental illness that would really come to dominate every aspect uh, of his personality. His, his difficulties began in 1931 when he was injured uh, in a workplace industrial accident, and this would lead to a long, uh, protracted, and very uh, bitter battle with his employer, uh, Consolidated Edison Company, over workmen's compensation benefits and disability payments. Um, as a result of his very progressive paranoia, this battle would ultimately become the crusade of his life. He he would come to believe that he was somehow selected by destiny to avenge the evils of, of Con Ed, uh, some would say he's he's uh, he was way ahead of his time. <laughs> so, but the bombing campaign that was to follow was really his way of focusing the world's attention on what he called the dastardly deeds of of Con Ed. Can you talk about how and when he builds his first bomb and where he plants it? First of all, it's important to remember that Metesky's bombs were, for the most part, very small. He was not necessarily interested in causing great injury 
although we knew, of course, it was it was definitely a possibility and a byproduct of what he was doing. He was more interested in making a point, uh, essentially, and and he I, he 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 once said, and I I don't recall the exact quote, but uh, a man with a hammer can do more damage than an actual uh, bomb or something like that. In other words, that over time, a, a gradual build-up and a gradual effort can make a point stronger than one large event. So in, to answer your, your, your question directly, his first pipe bomb turned up in uh, in or around the headquarters of Consolidated Edison. He would always wrap his bombs in a red sock. It became a signature. Uh, and he would leave a note, uh, and he would sign the note FP. And no one knew what FP meant for for years. And he would use certain language. He was a, He was a prolific letter writer. And when the bombings first started, he began his his letter writing, and um, with that first bomb that was in November of 1940, he, he left a a disturbing little missive that that said something to the effect of uh, there, "There's more where this came from," or or "There's more powder where uh, where this item was created," or, or, or words to that effect. But beginning in November of 1940, the police began to take notice of this disturbing pattern of small pipe bombs in and around the headquarters of of Con Ed. So shortly after his first one, he, he planted a, another one. And, you know, as I said, the devices were crude uh, at first, and so the police weren't overly concerned. But as I said, the bombs were almost always accompanied by some note or letter complaining about Con Ed. And so it didn't take long for the police to conclude that they were dealing with one you know, deranged individual. Did, did the police ever pick up on the fact that these bombs might have had something to do with a disgruntled Con Edison employee? So th- this is one of the major complaints of uh, the public and the, and the political apparatus um, after the fact. It was, it was painfully obvious that they were dealing with a, a disgruntled employee. He gave enough information in his letters so that one could easily conclude that they were dealing with somebody who had been injured in a workplace accident but Con Ed had, had thousands of those kinds of cases, and that's what the police you know, ultimately hung their hats on. They, they just said that the, the range of possibilities of who this individual could be was very broad. They even thought for a time that it could have been a disgruntled customer of Con Ed. They, they, they just weren't sure. There, there wasn't enough to go on early on, but you know, there were enough indications and calling cards that their focus was on Con Ed. The problem was that Con Ed always maintained, uh, frankly, until until close to the point where Metesky was uh, apprehended, 
that they had destroyed most of their older files. So, you know, the police were under the impression that there was no Con Ed file containing um, Metesky's documents um, uh, or, you know, any any uh, suspect's documents because uh, going back that far, going back to 1940. So, they you know, they, they kind of thought that they were relegated to just good old-fashioned police work uh, and that Con Ed was not going to be of much assistance to them. Certainly, uh, later on, that proved to be incorrect. There was a file on Metesky, and it, and it resulted in a great deal of antagonism between the police department and Con Ed. Right. So, so he takes a break then, doesn't he, for, for about 10 years? Tell us, if you would, why he stopped and, and the reason he picks things up again later. So after Pearl Harbor, the bomber sent out a series of letters, again, complaining about the evils of Con Ed, but also declaring a truce because of what he called his patriotic feelings. He kept his word, and he didn't plant any bombs during the war years. But during this time, his mental disorder began to intensify and, you know, of course, broaden. Um, his letter-writing campaign became incessant, with letters being sent to concerns all over New York, complaining bitterly about Con Ed. The focus of his anger soon uh, generalized and broadened. Anyone who didn't respond to him or sympathize with his plight, and no one did, became part of the conspiracy in his mind and became legitimate targets. He used this time off to hone his craft. He extended his knowledge of electrical circuits, and he experimented with different kinds of metals. Um, and, and he really he became much more proficient. And, you know, in the, the coming years, when the bombings resumed, they were much more powerful and sophisticated and it became uh, a real a matter of t- real concern to the, not only uh, uh, the police department, but to the public at large. So when do the police really start taking this guy seriously? And are they sure that it's the same guy from a decade earlier? Were they able to connect the earlier bombs with the later ones? Yeah, I mean, they were, they were, they were fairly confident that they were dealing with one individual because again because of these you know these calling cards most of the unexploded bombs were packed away in uh, a red wool sock again the letters sometimes Metesky provided warnings um, it was it was it was clear Un- until I would say uh, maybe 1953 or 1954 they saw him kind of as an inconsequential crank Certainly, they were worried about what he was doing, but since his his pipe bombs weren't that sophisticated, the earlier ones, uh, they, they weren't overly concerned. But you know, when he came back after his hiatus, he began to target these very well-known and populated areas in and around New York, such as Radio Music Hall, Penn Station, Grand Central, both Paramount Theaters, the Lexington Theater, Macy's. By 1956, uh, 33 different uh, and separate bombings had been attributed to him, 
though he would later admit to around 60. So it, it resulted in this real sense of apprehension, if not, uh, if not downright panic, which began to envelop the city. And finally, the police commissioner, Stephen Kennedy, would announce what he called the greatest manhunt in the history of the department. And prior to that time, it was the stated policy of the police department not to publish the details of their investigation um, because they didn't want to give uh, the bomber what, what they thought he wanted, and that was the, the attention. But as the devices became more sophisticated and more powerful and the prospect of injury became more prominent, they felt like they had no choice but to, to change uh, their policy. And they publicized uh, in, the, in the local newspapers uh, their entire file. Well, well, certainly not the entire file, because there were, there were things that they, that they uh, withheld that they felt uh, were, were pertinent to the investigation. But, but they published samples of the bomber's handwriting, some descriptions of the, the uh, unexploded pipe bombs, uh, to give the public an idea of what what to look for, just some pieces of evidence that maybe somebody was familiar with. They also posted a $25,000 reward, uh, and the police, uh, the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association, posted an additional $1,000 uh, reward. They created a bomb investigation unit, uh, they expanded the existing bomb squad. Um, every member of the police force was given responsibility to apprehend the mad bomber, and a promotion uh, was promised to the uh, to the individual or the the, the group of men that that was able to uh, find the evidence that would lead to his capture. Interesting. Can you talk about some of the more notable bombs through the 1950s? Well, I mean, there were there were many. In 1952, there were there were three bombs: uh, the Port Authority bus terminal, Lexington Theater twice, uh, and incidentally, at the Lexington Theater, with first injuries sustained. They weren't serious injuries, but people were were starting to be hurt, and it did require hospital care. Uh, 1953, he starts experimenting with flashlight bulbs and batteries uh, to mechanize his bombs. In, in March of 1953, uh, Radio City Music Hall, there, there's a bomb placed at Radio City Music Hall, and he uses also what becomes kind of a, a calling card for him. Strangely, he uses a throat lozenge, and he, and he moistened it with a degree of water or an amount of water. And depending on how much water... Uh, he would apply to the lozenge would dictate the rate at which the lozenge would dissolve and therefore bring the contact points into uh, into detonation on the bomb. So, in, as I said, in March 1953, he leaves a bomb at Radio City Music Hall, but because the throat lozenge mechanism is so was so unpredictable, the bomb detonates too soon. Metesky's still in the building, and one of the uh, the ushers, as he's leaving, says something like, uh, "We apologize for this, sir. We hope you'll come back." And Metesky thinks to himself, "Oh, I will definitely come back." <laughs> and late 
1953, he um, places a bomb at Capitol Theater, um, begins using uh, wristwatches to replace the throat lozenges. They result in a much more accurate timing uh, mechanism. In 1954, uh, he places bombs at Grand Central Station, Radio City Music Hall again, uh, the 8th Avenue Port Authority, 1955, Penn Station, uh, January of 55 and May, Radio City Music Hall once again, and th- there are many others. Uh, the the most dramatic one is um, the bombing at the uh, Paramount Theater that the book begins with, and that is, let's see, the date on is December 2nd, 1956, and that that really is the the bombing that that really begins to create this climate of fear in New York City. He was definitely of above average intelligence, and his bombs are getting more sophisticated, aren't they? Uh, it's true, and he was a uh, very mechanically minded and mechanically inclined individual. Um, he was clearly of of high intellect, um, but it's a question of how he chose to apply that that intellect that uh, you know became his undoing. But there's there's no doubt that he acquired uh, the skills uh, that were necessary to to. To perpetrate these acts, uh, when you take those skills and you apply the mental disorder that he suffered from, th- the result was pretty obvious. Uh, and and what you see is the result of the in, in incessant anger and deep rooted anger that he continued to to feel, and you know, and it resulted in his way of lashing out, not only at Con Ed, but ultimately uh, the world itself. We will be back after a brief break. And we have returned. Is there a generally accepted diagnosis for his mental illness? Well, definitely. Um, Dr. Brussel, who created the uh, criminal profile, reached the conclusion that he was... uh, a casebook, paranoid schizophrenic, that um, he uh, was egotistical, um, arrogant about his own abilities, meticulous in the in the um, work that he did. But but most importantly, he was deluded in thought. He was unable to rationally draw conclusions about everyday events and. So things that were uh, innocuous and innocent, Metesky would uh, use uh, because of his his uh, mental incapacity, uh, would use as or would twist in his mind to be further evidence of how Con Ed and those who worked with them or alongside them, which to him was became the world because his mental illness was insidious to the to the point that it 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 broadened and got worse over time uh so yes i mean it was uh a question just a a a question of his profound mental illness resulting in his only response in 
that was a, that he that he felt was appropriate, and that was a violent one. Fascinating. So, so that's a good segue. You mentioned James Russell. Can you talk about James Russell, who he was, and how he got involved in the case? Well, well, sure. And and I mean, one of the things about about the book, the Mad Bomber of New York, is that the the profiling element of the story really became the point of cultural significance. When you when you walk into your your local bookstore, you know, have a look at the nonfiction titles. On the cover of the books, you will undoubtedly see the main title in, in bold print, and then below a subtitle that almost invariably says something like, and the, the so-and-so that changed America. The point I'm trying to make is that publishers are generally looking beyond just an interesting story. They want an interesting story that has some cultural, social, or political significance. It's not enough that the story is entertaining or unique. It's got to be important. So the Mad Bomber is, uh, story is clearly an interesting piece of history, but the pressure felt by the New York City Police Department to apprehend their man would lead to the true significance of the case. The, the social upheaval caused by the Mad Bomber in the winter of 1956 caused one of the more progressive-minded captains of the police force his name was Howard Finney, to introduce a new and innovative approach to the investigation without any real viable leads in the case. Um, this captain uh, decided to make contact with a crime psychiatrist to assist in the search for the mad bomber. And what would result was the first criminal profile generated in the, in the United States to aid a police department in an active investigation. Um, Prior to the day of of the Mad Bomber, consultation with psychiatrists to extrapolate characteristics of you know a, a potential perpetrator's behavioral traits and personality was virtually non-existent and almost uniformly scorned uh, by law enforcement. It, it was viewed you know almost as an intrusion into the world of you know, good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground police work. James Brussel was the garish, somewhat arrogant assistant commissioner for New York's Department of Mental Hygiene, uh, I guess what we would now call the Department of Mental Health. He was an eclectic writer, uh, a regular creator of crossword puzzles for the New York Times and other newspapers. Um, Brussel maintained a private psychiatric practice in Manhattan, but it was his public position that established many of his, his contacts with the New York Police Department. And it was those contacts that would lead to this involvement in the Mad Bomber case. But again, it's important to note that it was this climate of fear, internal frustration in the police department, and political pressure, really, that led to Brussels' Uh, review of the case. And the intention really was that he would simply introduce a fresh set of eyes. I mean, and, and again, what we what we got was the first use of criminal profiling to aid a uh, an American police department. I mean, years later, in recounting the story in his memoirs, Brussel um, would muse about the staggering 
statistical problem of apprehending one tormented soul in a city of millions. He wrote, uh, this is a quote, he seemed like a ghost, but he had to be made of flesh and blood. He had been born, he had a mother and father, he ate and slept and walked and talked. He lived somewhere. Somewhere people knew him, saw his face, heard his voice. He had a name. Probably thousands of people in and around New York had some fleeting contact with him at one time or another. He sat next to people on subways and buses. He strolled past them on sidewalks. He rubbed elbows with them in stores. Though he sometimes seemed to be made of night stuff, unsolid, bodiless, he patently did exist. This was one of the few things about him that were known for sure. It narrowed the search to perhaps 10 million people in and around the New York metropolitan area. So on a, on a cold afternoon in the winter of 1956, Dr. Brussel sat in his Manhattan offices with the entire NYPD mad bomber file sprawled across, the, uh, across his desk as police captain Finney and two, uh, I'll say, snickering plainclothes detectives looked on. Using a combination of statistical analysis, behavioral uh, extrapolation and a wide knowledge of, of mental illness. He combed through every photograph, letter, and crime scene description in the case, and trait by trait developed what he later called his projected image. He called it a private blend of science, intuition, and hope. Within uh, a few days, the following profile appeared in the New York Times and newspapers uh, throughout New York and beyond, and it read, single man between 40 and 50 years old, introvert, unsocial, but not antisocial, skilled mechanic, cunning, neat with tools, egotistical of mechanical skill, contemptuous of other people, resentful of criticism of his work, but probably conceals resentment, Moral, honest, not interested in women, high school graduate, expert in civil or military ordinance, religious, might flare up violently at work when criticized, possible motive, discharge or reprimand, feels superior to critics, resentment keeps growing, present or former employer, consolidated Edison, probably case of progressive paranoia. Incredible. And that was pretty spot on, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't totally spot on. There were, I mean, Dr. Brussel used the tools that were available to him at the time, and he was guided by the attitudes of his day. So uh, he, he, was, he, he was very Freudian in his beliefs. So a lot of, a lot of what he developed in terms of character traits uh, for the Mad Bomber, were Freudian, and they were also ethnic, and they were so they were later discredited. It, you know what what he basically did was he would determine the the character traits of a potential perpetrator based on looking at crime scene evidence, and from that he would extrapolate a a mental illness. And a diagnosis of, of sorts. And 
from the diagnosis, he was then able to determine further characteristics based based on that diagnosis. So, I mean, it was clear in uh, Brussels' mind that the bomber was a man, uh, and these were this was based on traditional chauvinistic attitudes of the day, led him to believe that bombs and bomb construction was alien to the feminine personality. Um, he felt uh, it was obvious that the bomber had mechanical skills, some metalworking experience by examination of the construction of the bombs. He also felt that from from reviewing the letters that it was it was obvious that um, that the bomber suffered from a case of paranoia. From here, Brussel was able to extrapolate these characteristics of the paranoid personality. So interestingly, he he concluded that the bomber was symmetrically built, and this was based on uh, Kreshmer's observations of correlation between body type and psychological disposition, which we now obviously know has been discredited. Um, also concluded that uh, the bomber was middle-aged, that most paranoids are not fully symptomatic until past the age of 30, it, it has a, an insidious development. He felt one of the characteristics of a paranoid personality is that the person would be orderly, neat, and precise. He determined that the bomber was possibly German or Slavic because of the, what he perceived to be the use of certain words and phrases in his letters and a lack of American colloquialisms. He also felt that uh, traditionally in Slavic cultures, um, they would turn to bomb-making as, as, as a way to redress uh, grievances. Then he got into the, the, the Freudian aspects of, of the bomber. Uh, he studied the letters, and he concluded by the formation of the W's that the bombers suffered from an edible complex. The, the bomber often in, in theaters would slash the bottom of theater seats and place his bombs deep within the seats. And using the formation of the, the W's in um, Metesky's letters, uh, concluding that they somehow, somehow stood for or analogized to uh, woman's breasts, and then the anger and the violence associated with the slashing of the theater seats and the and the pushing of the uh, of the uh, of the device into the seats. He concluded that he was suffering from some type of unresolved Oedipal complex, and taking the Freudian analysis to its logical extreme, he determined that the bomber would be a loner, unmarried but might live with relatives since men did not typically live live alone he felt at the at the time he felt that if the bomber was uh slavic that he would probably be catholic uh, because most slavs in the united states at the time were catholic and that um he would most probably live in connecticut uh possibly bridgeport where a large concentration of slavs lived he also concluded that the bomber was chronically ill. He was right about that, um, but that came from the that came from the letters admissions that Metesky made in the letters 
that he had written. He, he had written, I am not well, and for this I will make Con Edison sorry. Russell concluded wrongly that Metesky suffered from heart disease. Uh, among the, mo the most brash uh, of Brussels' predictions that he made at the time when the detectives were uh, in his office uh, was his prediction that uh, when the bomber would be caught, when the bomber was caught, and he was confident that he would be caught, he'd be wearing a double-breasted suit. And then he added, it will be buttoned. And of course, this caused a certain degree of incredulity in the in the uh, police officers and the detective. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Th that's a little specific. <laughs> so, <laughs> can you tell us how the police finally connected the bombings to George Metesky? Sure. So, Brussel used to like to take credit for for the solving of the uh, of the case. Um, he, I mean, his his work and his profile, mostly accurate, not completely accurate, was accepted as accurate, and it it really worked to shine the light of awareness on this new tool available to police departments across America. But the the real the real catalyst for for cornering uh, George Metesky, it was really a confluence of events. There were two events that, that came together. The first one was that C Consolidated Edison finally went through their files and found what, what, uh, what they called troublesome files. And so they had a, uh, their administrative clerks going through these files and looking for telltale signs, uh, letters. They knew the types of words that uh, Metesky used in his letters, or the Mad Bomber used in his letters, so they knew what to look for. Um, the police department really felt that Con Ed had concealed these files, uh, and they w were, were not happy about it. Um, they felt that it, would, uh, it was embarrassing to Con Ed, and they didn't want the Mad Bomber to be associated with their, with their company. When it became, you know, painfully obvious after the uh, investigation was much more public that uh, the bad bomber did have a connection with Con Ed, they could no longer conceal that, and uh, the police department um, concluded it was then that they, they, they kind of, uh, these files kind of materialized. They never, uh, they never believed Con Ed, and, and no one truthfully knows to this day why or how these files um, just kind of materialized. But uh, long and the short of it, uh, they did. A, uh, a Con Ed clerk by the name of Alice Kelly, while going through one of these files, uh, was drawn to certain language that was used uh, in letters from the individual uh, using words like dastardly deeds and incessant acts and just kind of words that wouldn't normally be used. So they 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 stood out and they they served to identify this particular person. Um, at the same time, the, there was a there was a, a a great deal of press involvement. The there was intense competition between all of the New York papers to cover every aspect of the story and to certainly to sens uh, sensationalize the story with eye grabbing um, headlines. 
you know, each each newspaper devoted entire staffs of reporters to the case, and many tried to uncover that that missing lead or piece of evidence, perhaps neglected by by the police. So at the height of the public fear and the publicity, uh, it was around Christmas of 1956, Seymour Bergson, the publisher of Hearst's New York Journal American, came up with an idea. Uh, he later he later described it as a, a, a quote, a rather an innocent and almost absurdly simple thing. Um, he decided to publish an open letter to the Mad Bomber, asking the bomber to give himself up, and pleading, uh, pledging the the paper's legal and journalistic support. His, you know, the, the bomber's letters had expressed deep anger at Con Ed, and the Journal American promised to print his grievances if he turned himself in. Well, this led this open letter, uh, which was done. Uh, with uh, with the knowledge and consent of the New York Police Department, um, this led to a very public dialogue between the Mad Bomber and the newspaper. Uh, Metesky re- read these um, these open letters and responded. In one of Metesky's letters, he divulged the date of his industrial accident to Con Ed, and this was the damning piece of evidence that the police needed. And so shortly thereafter. Uh, they were able to narrow down taking taking this piece of information in conjunction with the file that Aunt Alice Kelly found uh, at Con Ed. They were able to com- to confirm that the Mad Bomber was in fact George Metesky from Waterbury, Connecticut. Back again after these messages, and we are back for a final time. So the workplace accident he was involved in, he, he was convinced it was connected to his tuberculosis, right? Yes. Um, since 1931, um, when Metesky was injured in an industrial accident um, at Consolidated Edison, um, he began suffering from um, very deep and profound attacks of of uh, tuberculosis, he he had pulmonary problems from that from around that time that he clearly attributed to his accident at Con Ed. Now there's there's no there's no sound and solid evidence to suggest that a an emission of gases or an inhalation of gases from a um, of a boiler that as he alleged would cause tuberculosis. It may cause uh, lung irritation, and clearly he did have lung irritation. But uh, medical evidence uh, would not necessarily suggest that Metesky's accident at Con Ed was uh, the, the cause, the proximate cause, of his almost lifelong battle with tuberculosis, though you could never tell Metesky that. Right, right. So can you talk about how he was arrested, his interrogation, and his journey through the legal system? So, I mean, he's, he's, when he's arrested, there's almost a, a relief in Metesky. All of the, the photographs of him are, at the time, are, uh, 
you can see he's he's smiling. He's holding up uh, copies of uh, the New York Journal American that have you know, splashed with headlines about the Mad Bomber. He's he's interrogated by uh, initially by the um, Waterbury, Connecticut Police Department, and then he's extradited down to New York. He freely and openly provides all details of his handiwork, and he. Um, he even tells the detectives, you know, there are other there are other bombs at my house, and the detectives hadn't found them. So he, he he told them the exact location. They were stored underneath a desk, almost affixed to the bottom of a of, of a desk or the underside of a desk. And, and Metesky said, I don't I don't want you to be hurt. And he was he was careful about that, and he and he wanted to assist the police. His his anger had now found a um, a new outlet. He, he thought that his capture would now allow him to finally make public the evil deeds of Con Ed. And that had been his, you know, his objective from the start. He was always looking for a platform. And when no one listened to him through his letter-writing campaign, he turned to bombs. And when the bombing campaign intensified, he finally received the notoriety, so to speak, or the the uh, attention that he was searching for. Navid was captured. He was going to use that as a, a basis to uh, to tell his story. His case, you know, kind of wound through the judicial system. He was because his bombings were in separate counties. He was uh, indicted in two separate counties. King. Kings County and New York County, and each reached different conclusions as to his competence to stand trial. Ultimately, New York County concluded that he was incompetent to stand trial, meaning that he could not assist his counsel in advocating for him. In other words, he couldn't help in his defense, and he really wasn't fully aware of, of the proceedings against him. So Metesky would never stand trial for his crimes. And accordingly, he would never have the opportunity to formally assert uh, his defenses uh, involving uh, state of mind. You know, the, the high-profile proceedings to test his competency, however, served to focus the spotlight of controversy upon uh, the insanity defense in New York, and it would it would become a springboard for change in the in the system. But Metesky, um, again, never even had the opportunity to assert the, the, the uh, insanity defense because he was found incompetent to stand trial. And so he never, uh, he never did stand trial. Uh, he was sent to Matawan State Hospital and for... The next, essentially, I think it was 18 years. For 18 years, he would, as a as a um, committed resident of Matawan, he would continue his campaign of anger against the system that he was sure had conspired against him. His mental illness had not subsided, and certainly at Matawan, they were doing very little to treat him. Um, they were housing him, as with many others. You know, the criminally insane were 
at the time were basically um, uh, locked away and uh, they weren't treated necessarily in a humane manner. Metesky would tell many stories of of people at Matawan who were mistreated, uh, not necessarily himself. So Metesky's crusade um, really became um, focused now at Matawan. Questions of sanity and, and competence to stand trial would be his new crusade in life. And in place of bombs, Metesky would hurl motions and legal briefs, uh, self-generated at prosecutors and judges. Again, what he was trying to do was simply get a hearing so he could use that as a springboard to tell the world about Con Ed. Um, The court record was replete with page upon page of Metesky's handwritten pleadings, some coherent, um, most not, um, but all of them provide this fascinating glimpse into the inner workings of his mind. At every level, Metesky would face frustration and setbacks, and in each case, it, was, it only confirmed his ultimate sense of, of conspiratorial paranoia. Uh, as the years went by, and as societal attitudes toward mental illness began to evolve, however, Metesky's case would catch the attention of various public interest law firms who saw an opportunity to make changes in New York's system of corrections for the mentally incompetent. Through the efforts of these law firms and Metesky's willingness to be a plaintiff in some of these cases, um, no longer would the mentally ill be locked up in institutions for the criminally insane and have the, the key thrown away. Um, Metesky's case would, would find its way to the United States Supreme Court, not through hearing, but through um, uh, remand, basically. They accepted the findings of the lower courts and would ultimately become a catalyst for the development of mental health standards as they applied to New York's penal system. The insane, or the criminally insane, were now entitled to a jury trial on the issue of dangerousness as a condition to their continued confinement in a criminal institution. Metesky would would not even need to have that hearing. Um, There was a statute in New York that if one served, if one who was uh, committed to a criminally, uh, an an institution for the criminally insane served two-thirds, at least two-thirds, of the sentence for the highest or most serious crime alleged in an indictment, he was to be released. Uh, Not not released to the public, but released to a a non... uh, No, strike that, strike that. He would be released. I was going to say released to a civil institution, but that that would be if there was a dangerousness hearing and uh, the jury found that he was not dangerous. He wouldn't be released in that particular case. He would be released only to the custody of a civil institution rather than a criminal institution such as Matawan was. Um, That process was not needed because Metesky had served, as I said, uh, more than two-thirds of the highest sentence uh, of the, uh, the most serious charge in the indictment, and therefore uh, he was released in 
1973, in December of 1973. And considering his lifelong health problems, he lived a long life. He, he died when he was 90, right? That's right. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting that he outlived all of his accusers. He outlived the prosecutors, the judges. Uh, he outlived many of the people at Con Ed who uh, he felt was were conspiring against him. He died at 93 years old in May of 1994. Certainly, he was not not cured of his mental illness, but at at 93 years old, he he uh, and before then, after his release, um, he just wanted to be left alone, uh, and so he he granted a few interviews but pretty much kept to himself. He certainly never went back to his old bomb-making activities, but there was certainly no evidence, no clinical evidence, that he was cured at the time that he left um, Matawan. What was fairly clear was that Metesky was no longer a danger to society. In 1957, when... Metesky was being being investigated and being and when his case was being reviewed by the attending psychiatrist to determine his competency to stand trial, he made a uh, a really re- remarkable statements. He made some some remarkable statements that strikingly reveal the mind uh, and, and the illness that Metesky suffered uh, suffered under. In 1957, he was asked by the state psychiatrist, have you committed a crime? No, of course not. How can I have committed a crime if I perform society a great service? Do you feel that you should be punished? No, of course not. When two nations have a dispute, they write notes to each other. When the notes are ineffective, then they have to use force. They send over bombers, blow up cities, kill and maim many innocent women and children. And when the bombers return from their mission, society pins a medal upon their breast for their good deeds and for services rendered. Do you feel you should be similarly rewarded? Certainly. You learned from newspaper reports that innocent people were hurt by the bomb explosions, did you not? Yes, that's what I heard over the radio, and I felt bad about that. Because if the police were not criminally negligent in their duties, they would have gotten those people out of the area. If you felt bad about innocent people getting hurt, then why did you continue laying many more bombs that exploded? Because I had a great mission to carry out, and it was my duty to continue in my efforts to attract attention to the world to expose Con Ed. This was my great service to society. What are you guilty of, if anything? The only thing I am guilty of is making a loud noise in a public place. So that that exchange really really exemplifies, really illustrates the the mind of George Metesky, and it's been written that behind every criminal act is is the criminal mind, and in this particular case, it was it was the mind of George Metesky that betrayed him. Interesting. And it's pretty amazing that with 30-plus bombs, no one was actually killed. Uh, completely amazing. And the, that was the major concern of the police. And, and 
through 1956, as the bombs were becoming more um, sophisticated and much more powerful, that that reality definitely existed, and that is one of the main reasons why uh, the police activity uh, and the police investigation really came to a frantic point. So back at the beginning of the interview, you mentioned he used the initials FP. Can you tell us what FP stood for? Very interesting. Metesky revealed at the time of his arrest, when, when asked, that FP stood for fair play, and that was his objective. He was only looking for fair play. Are there any comparisons to be made between the Mad Bomber and the Unabomber? So, I mean, this is an interesting point. There are comparisons. Uh, The Unabomber, uh, Kaczynski, also used um, initials uh, in, in some of his, I think, in his manifesto. But, you know, for Metesky, Metesky bore no lofty social goals or political objectives, he, he certainly would, would, would not uh, and did not provide any type of manifesto. Yes, he was an incessant letter writer, but it wasn't for any particular uh, political reason. He harbored no broad civic message or, or popular agenda. He didn't espouse government overflow, uh, overthrow or violent rebellion. He wasn't seeking to extort money, and he gained no pleasure from indiscriminate injury. The Mad Bomber of New York simply held a grudge, and that was it. And and I think that is the major distinction between um, Metesky and uh, Kaczynski, the uh, Unabomber. There's a really odd photograph of George Metesky behind bars. And he's wearing a fitting expression for someone nicknamed the Mad Bomber. It's inappropriate, taking into consideration his predicament at the time that the, the, the photograph was taken. It's just plain inappropriate. It's not. It's not the the type of. It's not the type of expression that one would expect for somebody facing the the serious charges that he was facing. But 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 again, you you have to you have to go back to his mindset. And he was thinking, what he was thinking at the time was, I, I'm, he was relieved, number one, and number two, he finally felt that he had a, a platform to air his grievances against Con Ed. It was all about Con Ed. So where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, my website is michaelgreenberg.com, and that's Greenberg with a B-U-R-G, and my uh, most current book is scheduled for publication in August of 2018. It's actually a, a change of pace for me. It's a young adult book, um, and it's a, uh, a biography of Mertilla Minor, who founded the first teacher's school for African-American girls in the nation's capital uh, during the... Um, during the Civil War era. So it's a uh, very interesting story. Uh, she's a, uh, a brave, brave, very courageous woman who set out really against all, all odds and, and at a time when tensions were extremely high and in a place 
known for its uh, intolerance of abolitionist and northern thought. She set out to create a uh, a school for uh, for people who uh, who many thought uh, were, were not deserving of such a school. So uh, it was a uh, an interesting. It's an interesting story, an interesting case, and I enjoyed writing it. Yeah, absolutely. And your book about Paul Revere looks really compelling as well. So thank you. I mean, and and as you can see, uh, the name of that book was The Court Martial of Paul Revere. And and you can see by the title, the the overriding theme in in my books is um, that I like to try to find stories that have slipped through the cracks, um, stories that are forgotten. I call them forgotten jewels of history. And I think I've uh, been able to do that in in each of my books, and um, um, it's something I'm uh, I'm quite proud of. Well, I appreciate so much your time today. Thank you. Eric, thanks very much for having me. I've been speaking to Michael Greenberg, the author of The Mad Bomber of New York, The Extraordinary True Story of the Manhunt That Paralyzed a City. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!